0: Well, I think what they really want is for you to obey the social norms, but in such a natural and intuitive way that you don't even have to think about it.
1: So, like, And that's what kind people like... mean
0: by authenticity, really. We were once foragers for a million years and living comfortably as foragers. And then farming became possible only when we used strong new social pressures to create new norms and, and new values that farmers adopted. Uh, And the major mechanisms for causing those big changes were mediated in substantial part by poverty. That is, there was the threat that you would die if you didn't follow the new norms. And then in the last few centuries, as we've gotten richer, those threats have faded and seem less credible. And so we've drifted back toward forager values in a lot of our lives outside of work.
1: Hi hi, welcome welcome. This is the From the New World podcast. Today I'm speaking with Robin Hansen. It's his second time on the show, and it's great just looking back and comparing and see how far the podcast has gone. Well, we're still running into some audio quality issues, which you might hear a little bit of in the episode. Maybe that's just a curse whenever Robin appears. But we speak on authenticity, autodidacts, deaths of despair, the world mob. Forager Values, The Sacred, Tax Career Agents, Elon Musk, Academic Standards, Intelligence Tests, and Some Interesting Answers to Order and Chaos. As always, the best thing you can do to help us out is to let a friend know about the show. I know it's probably, uh, you've probably heard this several times now, but I say it again and again because it really is important, and because most people have more than one friend. If you have a friend who has the same types of interests, same types of habits, then the odds are that friend will also enjoy this podcast, and you're not helping us, you're not only helping us I should say, you are definitely helping us, but you're also helping your friend out too. So please do that, and you can also help out by subscribing, leaving a positive review, and or suggesting some future guests for the show. Without further ado, here's Robin Hansen. All right, welcome back to the show. The first question I'm going to ask. The moral circle, the number of people you care about, too large or too small?
0: Um, I think most people I know make it too large, even if maybe most people in the world make it too small.
1: Interesting. <laughs> sort of who I'm talking right. to here then. <laughs> Just on average, in general.
0: Right. So averaging over all of history.
1: <laughs> averaging over all of the present.
0: All of people in the present, everywhere in the world, probably yes. still too small. But averaging over the people I know and I talk to, probably too large.
1: Interesting. Okay. Well, we'll learn more about the people you know. Uh, you're married, right? Yes. Would you like to give my audience some dating advice? What is the number one thing that they can, they can do? <laughs> um, gee, dating advice.
0: Well, yes, date <laughs> I'm pro dating. <laughs> Was that the question? No. <laughs> this is already a good answer. <laughs> um, but, um, you know, in some sense, the whole idea that there would be reliable advice that you could follow is somewhat off-putting because a lot of what people want is to see that you're being spontaneous and sincere and not following a formula. So <laughs> right. is that true? Well, to some extent, right, so so there's also, I mean, depends on what you want looking for in a date, really. So the standard story is there's short-term mating and long-term mating, and that they have different purposes and different signals you're looking for. Um, if what you're looking for is the potential for a long-term match, then you care more about sincerity and, and, you know, reading them accurately and seeing that they, you know, they, they're trying to do this right and and they're re- really responsive to you, as opposed to following some formula that often works. <laughs> uh, that is, but if what you want is just a very you know simple, quick, short-term relationship that will go smoothly, then in some sense you want to see somebody else who who gets the rules of these things and will follow along and not cause trouble,
1: <laughs> right? Even even in the, the opposite case. I'm not sure that people want spontaneity. This seems, I don't know, like I can be wrong here, but. But
0: they're really put off by the idea that they can't read you well. That is that your appearance is misleading, that underneath you have a different feeling about it. And then you're sort of following some sort of algorithm or set of rules to behave. You know, one of which is to pretend like you're not following the rules.
1: Right. This is, this is interesting. So I don't know. What's a what's the scenario we could set up to to kind of test this? Because I think that there are a lot of scripts that people follow when they're when they're on first dates that aren't necessarily like off putting. Right? Like a lot of things are kind of uh performed or uh I'll I'll link this conversation below, but you know, the kind of front stage stuff, right?
0: So I recently did some thinking about the sacred and realize yes, how we treat sacred differently. And one of the things we do treat sacredly is love. And so that's intersecting with, marriage, with uh, dating norms. And so many sacred things, especially including love, are things you're not supposed to be too consciously planning. You're supposed to be going with your intuitions and feelings and being relatively straightforward with those. So that's partly what I'm going with here, is that if you are looking for love, you are looking for someone who's not being too conscious about their presentation.
1: See, this is this is something that I'm just very skeptical of in general. I, I think that in the present moment, you have a lot of basically like societal valorizing of spontaneity. So basically, spontaneity is just a signal that you conform to the public image. Like, this is, this is most obvious with, uh, I don't know, a lot of the kind of like diversity norms. But even in even in something as uh, as mundane as like as like dress, right? I think that you have a lot of these situations where people say they want like individual individuality or spontaneity, but that's actually just a signal that that you're like taking uh, you're taking the social norms into consideration enough.
0: Well, I think what they really want is for you to obey the social norms, but in such a natural and intuitive way that you don't even have to think about it.
1: So, like, And that's what kind people mean like,
0: by authenticity, really.
1: Another kind of strange counterexample to this might be, uh, it might be Trump, right? Like how kind of natural is Trump versus, you know, versus like a construct? It's it, It's pretty difficult to tell right on on one hand he was literally like a professional actor right he was literally doing the apprentice reality tv almost like everything is played up everything is sort of constructed in this way Uh, on the other hand right all these things kind of give give like the signals of of authenticity they're kind of like more authentic than authentic authentic right and that, that i think is what people are actually drawn to
0: you mean the performance of authenticity?
1: Yes, exactly, exactly.
0: So I, I agree that there just isn't really a real authenticity. <laughs> that is, authenticity is a certain kind of performance that's called authentic. And it's not naturally who you are. It's the sort of person you want to be in some sense. And per, often a person you can smoothly be without too much
1: maintenance or management of it. But it is constructed. I don't know. Like, there's this kind of. I think there is a sort of like actual authenticity, and you can tell it. There's authenticity, actual authenticity, because there's like new things, right? Like, inventing a new thing is authenticity almost by definition, because like you're not you're not involving anyone, right? You're not you're not replicating something. You're literally like inventing a thing, right? Yeah, so I, I'm I not think sure that, that's like, true. Authenticity exists. It's just like you know. Very autistic and not really well liked. I
0: think people who are inventing things are often going through a performance that they've practiced and gotten good at, just the way everybody else is for other things. Oh, Invention is often a part of a performance that's practiced.
1: Okay, so so now we're getting into this realm where I'm I'm not too sure about the definitions. What what exactly do we mean by authenticity here?
0: So, I mean, I'm just much more interested in referring to whatever the thing people think they're referring to when they use the word rather than I don't care what I would separately mean because it's not actually that important a concept to me.
1: Right. So I would define authenticity as basically a negative of conformity, right? I would define authenticity as uh, not n- not copying something else, right? Maybe maybe I'm, I'm using it too similarly to originality, but that's basically the way I'm using it. Is that different from how, how most people use it?
0: I think they mean it in the sense of you're not visibly suffering from or, you know, following conformity pressures. That is, you know, sometimes we are like, you know, you can imagine a, you know, terrorist opens a gun in front of a crowd of people and says, everybody on the floor, right? That response is not authentic, right? (laughs) It's being very much driven by this outside force, right? And, And of course we could resent that. So that might be a prototypical opposite case um so i think what people are talking about authenticity one part they're talking about is just the lack of that sort of thing so it appears to sort of not be driven by outside forces but when you asked individuals under what situations they would see themselves as most authentic what they tend to say is situations where they would feel most admired or most admiring themselves which is often actually following social pressures but they'd want to do it (laughs) effortlessly you see without any appearance of you know managing it or or pushing for it or having to to force it
1: yes you have to... to be the true believer you have to not only conform but like be be so conformist that it that it is who you are originally that's that's quite interesting i don't know another this is maybe a strange topic jump but we'll see the connection pretty quickly i think. Another thing that really stood out in your podcast series with Agnes Callard is uh, this idea of like an autodidact, right? So you have a lot of these circumstances. For me, like my entire life has been like this, where it's like, oh, there there are so many questions to ask. There are so many obvious questions to ask and some non-obvious ones. And like, you just choose one. And if you just choose one, you'll never run out of things to learn. And like, how could people not have anything to learn? but you you two discuss this in in much more detail and i would recommend my my listeners listen but uh this way maybe it's the most intuitive way for you too how can there be people out there who like just don't have things to learn on their own
0: so i remember in my life there have been times when i had conversations with other people where at the time and soon afterwards, I had the sense that I'd made far more progress talking with them than I would by myself. Mm. And I can easily imagine that if I'd had a lot more opportunities for that, and there were these other people of that quality just had always been available, and I would just be much more in the habit of talking with other people, and therefore not so much in the habit of thinking by myself, And that could have been me. So I'm not sure this is like a fundamental personality trait from birth sort of thing, although it may be, but it might also just be what you make, you know, good with that you have available. So people who are, you know, put into high quality environments with other people they can talk to who will willing to treat them as rough equals or something, they may well learn how to think by thinking with other people. And that could be just much better, (laughs) but many of us, um, are just, we're not sorted that way. Right. Many of us are just not very much like all the people around us and we haven't been put in a special place with other people around us, people who like to think as much as we do and think in similar styles than we do. And so we are forced to either think with the other people around us in the way that they think or think by ourselves. And that last description, I think, was me. But I still right. see and what I was missing when I do have these conversations, including with Agnes, where I see that we often can just make a lot more progress talking with somebody else than I could by myself.
1: Yeah, but I think, I don't know, at least from the way she was describing it it's it's not like it, it's not like you're just learning more slowly if you're not talking to someone else right if if you're a her, her term a heterodidact right it's that like this is something that's just it, it's very difficult to get a direction at all right this is this is what i've heard and this is something i have heard from people in my own life as well right so, so is there just like is there just like an instinct that gets lost there if you're too accustomed to learning from other people like what is actually happening there
0: There must be two-person devices, like, I don't know, two-person bicycles or something out there, where if two people get used to using this two-person device together, then that's how they know how to use it. And maybe they would have to have a whole long learning curve to use that device by themselves or to go learn a different device that only take one person to use it. Um, like. You know, even I guess, you know, these big airplanes, you see a pilot and a co pilot up there, right? Suggesting maybe that a pilot would have a bit of trouble flying it all by themselves. So, if you're, if you know, this is about the tools you rely on and that you get used to. But we have this in other ways in our life, right? So, I, I can write by hand, but I've gotten used to typing for many decades now. <laughs> and if forced to try to write out an idea in hand by cursive, I would probably just quit and wait till I could type again. Right? I mean, there's it's maybe not so clear when you can't do something else versus you just won't because it looks like too much trouble.
1: And this is something that can happen to independent inquiry.
0: Right. If you're used, I mean you could just be used to a two-person style of inquiry. And then you know, find it hard to fill in the other role. And in some sense, you'd have to like go back and forth in the different roles. I mean, you probably practice in both both roles, but can you do them together? Like yeah, tennis, for to example. To me, right? there are just so <laughs> I can many... play tennis with somebody yeah. else. It's much harder for me to play tennis by myself. Right. Unless I put a wall up there to bounce the ball off of, right?
1: Yeah, I guess this is explaining a lot. I don't know, though, at, at the same time, at, at the same time, I'm pretty skeptical that what I see as like a pre-foundational talent, right? A pre-foundational question of like, can you do this, right? If forced to like sit down and do this, right? Like if forced to like do this for like an analyst role at some kind of like trading firm, right? Most people do not have that kind of capability, right? So it's not, maybe and, and sure, maybe this is something that gets better with training, like, sure. But also, like, I, I'm pretty skeptical. I'm, I'm pretty skeptical that this... I don't know, like, how would we even evaluate that claim, right? So like, can we do, like, could... an actual experiment where we, like, separate some people off and have them, like, think on their own since childhood and see if there's a there's a higher rate of them maintaining these skills in the future?
0: So, as you may know, solitary confinement in prison is really quite damaging. Right. No, I... <laughs> so that shows you that like we can really be quite reliant on other people in ways that we don't notice Mm. you know on a minute-to-minute basis uh you might think how how is it that you can't sit alone in a room i mean i if i sent you to sit in a room for five minutes you'd do fine right even an hour i can send you in a room for even 12 or 24 hours and you'll come out of it just fine right How is it that you can't then sit in a room for six months by yourself? (laughs) Isn't that weird? You'll do it fine for a day, but not for six months. So it shows you that even, you know, observing someone's behavior for a whole day and what seemed, they seem to be fine with, isn't a good indication about the six
1: month period. Right. I I agree with that. I I agree with that point, but I don't know. I guess phrasing it as like one specific pushback isn't quite right, but I'm just generally skeptical. Like the the, the weight of evidence there that like this is something that is this is something that is like conditioned uh, into people. I'm just quite skeptical of that claim. Uh, Yeah, I don't know. Maybe this is just an empirical claim that we can't really validate unless we do like some kind of pretty. So it sounds
0: like like you're reluctant to conclude that you're weird.
1: No, I, I'm reluctant. No, my my position, like, okay, if I were to bet on a position, right, it would be that this is like highly uh, genetically determined. So so I'm weird, but for different reasons.
0: Okay, right. But you, the question is, you look inside yourself and say, I can think about myself, it looks just pretty easy. How come anybody else can't do this? Then the problem is like, can I envision what's hard for other people? That's easy for me? Can I, can I be able to see into those sources of difficulty that I can't see in myself.
1: I don't know, maybe this is my hidden motive, but like my actual motive is a lot simpler, which is like there doesn't seem to be a lot of variation in between people or like it or sorry, variation in in like in between one person's own life, right? So so that makes me think like in general, social science has this bias towards, like, towards like um, interventions and towards things that aren't determined. And I'm I'm of the belief that more often than not, things are determined. Maybe this is like some broader meta point. But but at least to me, okay. like the evidence, like if, if you get very low, if you get very low variation in in one person's life. Right or like in any person's life, across the entire sample, then to me, to me, like I feel like you should assume most of the time that it's more or less constant. And and of course, this is something that can be you know proven or disproven by collecting additional data. Like yes, this is all well and good, and I hope that someone does that. So it sounds like you're
0: saying some of us are just naturally autodidacts and others aren't. So is that the conclusion you're going toward here?
1: Uh, closer to that end than the other, yeah.
0: Okay. And then what were we going to conclude from that? Where does that lead
1: us? What do you mean? Like, that's just, that's just the, that's just the conclusion.
0: Some of us are more naturally autodidacts, although that could also be a result of our early history, right? But still later on, we would become more naturally one way or the other. I think, I think, you know, Agnes was agreeing with that. And I too. It's more just, can we distinguish what causes people to be one way or the other?
1: Yeah, so, so this initial this initial kind of conflict, right, or not conflict, but like this initial disagreement was was about whether uh, whether it was more something that that can be conditioned versus something that can be or, or something that is like basically constant, right? And, and because like this this has important implications, right? If it's something that can be conditioned, then perhaps we should be educating kids in a way that 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 creates more autodidacts, right?
0: That isn't obvious. I mean, the question is, what is actually the most productive? style right right it's not obvious the autodidact is the most productive style
1: it isn't okay this is interesting
0: i think i think it's more of a matching thing right in order to do pair production effectively you need to find a match you need to to make a pair and then who matches you on enough characteristics and then have a topic that the two of you want to pursue together
1: Oh, if, I just mean in like in, in, in society, in society more broadly, right? Like if we if we convert the marginal heterodidact into the marginal autodidact, like to to me, it's it's just like very obvious that we get more startup formation, we get more invention, and, and th- th- those are just very good things, right?
0: Okay, so there's a difference between what's good for society and what's good for the individuals involved. So it could still be. I mean, quite plausibly from a great many features, you know, we could guess that most individuals are doing roughly the right thing for their personal gain, but that we could predict Wait, in what? general what would be good for the rest of us.
1: <laughs> I'm I'm actually like pretty skeptical of that. Or like I don't know, it depends on what we mean by personal gain. But like that to me seems like a pretty pretty suspect claim. Right?
0: So so I would make the following claim about a sort of a default analytical assumption to make, which is just, you know, human behavior isn't random in general. (laughs) Human behavior was caused by prior cultural and biological evolution. And so, you know, the typical result of that evolution is going to be rough behavior parameter settings that at least were roughly the right thing to do in the past world where these things evolved. So then if you're going to find you know, errors, you're either going to find just deviations where a particular situation happens to be different than what the average of the past would have been appropriate for, and you know, people are just not noticing that deviation, or there might be just systematic ways in which the world has changed that we haven't adapted for. And part of that could be systematic ways in which what you should do something different for your own benefit versus systematic ways that you should be doing something different for the world's benefit.
1: Wait, that, that that to me is a much weaker claim because yeah, like you can wrap a lot of things into the world has changed. And, and I think I would, I would agree with this version of the, uh, of the statement, right? Most people are doing things that are like reasonably good evolutionarily, but you know, like evolutionarily, evolutionarily, uh, you didn't have a lot of obesity or opiates. <laughs>
0: Well, I mean, somehow obesity and opiates are a response in the current situation to something. And until we know what that thing is, it's harder to say whether it's a misfiring.
1: Okay, like what is a hypothetical scenario where like the the, the consumption the current level of consumption of opiates is like appropriate? So,
0: I mean, the first thing is that apparently um, opiate consumption and suicides have been doubling every decade for 50 years, at least in the U.S. So I find this a very disturbing trend that is over these 50 years, the different kinds of drugs that people have died from have varied quite a lot and sort of the background social conditions and causes of things have varied quite a lot, but nevertheless, the trend is pretty steady. And this is something I've noticed in some other areas that is uh, often we do have very steady trends where the usual explanations people would give are not steady, which suggests that those are not in fact the best explanations. So a, a closely related analog is the overall fallen mortality. Over the last century, age specific mortality has fallen at a pretty steady exponential trend even though the major explanations people would give for that fall even though you know they've fallen in the same direction but not with the steady same steady trend so people might point to medicine or they might point to uh nutrition or sanitation and all of those things have improved a lot over the last century but none of them have improved very steadily even though the overall trend is quite steady. And so I'd say that means these probably aren't the main explanations for the fallen mortality. And uh, similarly, if we looked at the usual explanations for the rise in these deaths of despair, as they call them, I'd say it's important to notice that it's been a pretty steady trend, whereas most of the things people would point to as explanations have not been so steady. People point to the particular drugs that happen to be available or to particular law enforcement regimes and whether law enforcement was severe or mild. And they point to the states of the economy going up or down or changes in inequality and all sorts of things. Um, And they just don't seem as steady as the trend.
1: Hmm. So, So do you have any guesses on a bigger on a bigger meta trend? um
0: I, I'm I'm kind of stuck on the death of pair there, there, so there's some other major trends in society so first I'm a blah blah blah, blah, blah. <laughs> first of all there's some trends on the scale of centuries that I do think I have some handle on on the major causes of those I'm not sure the deaths of despair is such a thing but uh, we have trends on the scale of centuries of the form say um not just the rise in wealth rise in lifespan uh Fall in fertility, uh, fall in war, fall in religion, rise in leisure, rise in art, rise in democracy, fall you know—fall in slavery. Uh, there's a whole bunch of big major trends over the last few centuries, and I do have a rough explanation for those. And then there's another set of trends that we've seen, say, consistently in the U.S. since the end of World War II. And then I'd have another set of explanation for those in particular. Uh, the, the, the drug deaths, I'm s- not sure about yet. <laughs> and I'm open to hearing some explanations and trying to shoot them down.
1: So what do you think of the secularization hypothesis? Basically that uh, as as uh, the United States or as other countries have, uh, have uh, decreased religiosity in really any kind of religion, uh, they've seen an increase in either these deaths despair or other kind of, uh, I think I think promiscuity is involved with this as well. Just a, uh, a a more general decline in various aspects, whether it's whether it's substance abuse, whether it's suicide, etc.
0: So religiosity and marriage and promiscuity are several centuries long trends. Um, the drug deaths seems to be a shorter trend although maybe it's just something we couldn't see before but um so i i guess i have a story about this longer term trends in that uh the key idea is that we were once foragers for a million years and living comfortably as foragers and then farming became possible only when we used strong new social pressures to create new norms and, and new values that farmers adopted uh, and the major mechanisms for causing those big changes were mediated in substantial part by poverty. That is, there was the threat that you would die if you didn't follow the new norms. And then in the last few centuries, as we've gotten richer, those threats have faded and seem less credible. And so we've drifted back toward forager values in a lot of our lives outside of work. And that plausibly explains the, the religion, promiscuity, Leisure trends again, democracy, uh, war, um, and you know, plausibly whatever else follows from those trends. Um, I'm just not sure that the. I mean, uh, you know, there's there's a plausible story that uh, as men as promiscuity rises and um, marriage falls, and leisure rises and wealth rises that many young men don't get motivated by work and the prospect of marriage and mating in the way they used to. And at the low end of the desirability spectrum, they are um, unhappy with that. But um, that's plausible, but I don't know how strong, how much confidence I can put that.
1: So, that's quite interesting. So forager values, uh, aside from, is that just your, the word that you use for, uh, for these trends, promiscuity, secularization, leisure, or are there other other components to it? Is there some kind of like coherence, um, kind of like propositional ideology to this?
0: Well, the story would be that farmers just had to exert a lot more self-control than foragers did. And they were proud of exerting their self-control to resist forager inclinations, say, to promiscuity or leisure. Uh, They made themselves work. They made themselves be faithful. Uh, But as the pressures to be farmers have receded and people have drifted back toward foragers, then they become more like foragers, although they're in a strange world that isn't the world foragers lived in. So we're living in much higher density, more anonymity, or strange technology and a lot of work, um, you know. Maybe those make a difference,
1: right? And so you have, you have this evolutionary mismatch, right? Um, so, what's interesting is that this is kind of pre vague, right? Like, I don't know how because you're in the circumstance where, uh, I mean, it's hard to call any of this the kind of like quote unquote forager lifestyle. There's much more uh, interdependency, there's much more trade, there are systems that are executing at a global scale. But but simultaneously, you, you can, I think you can make a, quite a reasonable case that these, basically these kind of social norms are, are at least somewhat similar, right? I, I think that a big difference yeah, anonymity is a very big difference, right? An- anonymity and aggregation are, are, are very big differences where I, I think like in the forager lifestyle, uh, at least if there are predators around, the kind of neuroticism makes sense, right? The kind of paranoia of, of negativity, of danger, the hyper alertness. But uh, in the modern world, it makes next to no sense, right? And so you see this as a quite a grave mismatch and, uh, of course, having a strong presence in politics and many other factors, right? So, so where do you see... The, the problem is, I'm not sure if this is, a, this is a criticism or not, right? You can just say, like, okay, there, there are forager values, but, you know, those forager values aren't really uh, lining up. So what, what's the kind of payoff here, I guess, is the question. Right. What what can we what can we predict about the future that is sort of non obvious by saying that people are reverting to forager values?
0: Well, first we can say you should expect these trends to continue as long as wealth continues to increase, if wealth is the driving force. So uh, don't expect this to reverse anytime soon. And whatever things are getting worse, are going to continue to get worse along with the things that get better. Um. Even more dramatically, it says that if we enter some future regime where per capita wealth changes a lot, or income changes a lot, this could all dramatically change. So my book, The Age of M, Work, Love and Life and Robots Rule the Earth is about a future scenario where most of the creatures there are living near subsistence wages. And plausibly, then they would no longer have our sort of forager values. Pretty dramatic prediction. <laughs> um, so you know these are not random things these are part of a fundamental trend that you should expect to continue um, but it isn't necessarily great in the sense that um, these feel like they are the right things that should happen from our sort of forge ourselves point of view but it may not work out very well in the modern world
1: I don't think they really feel like they're things that are supposed to happen at all right that's why you have this kind of political ferment particularly on the right but even on the left i don't think they're very satisfied with this i think they have much much more wrong scapegoats well more wrong scapegoats uh in in terms of what they blame for this i don't know quite quite tragic lifestyle but if you
0: if you look at most historical fiction Most historical fiction is animated by the passion to show a contrast between some characters who have modern values and other characters who have the more ancient world values. The usual point of showing that contrast is to praise the former and criticize the latter. And people love that. (laughs) They love seeing... To
1: praise the the modern values and to judge the the ancient ones?
0: In contrast, yes, to show how terrible those ancient people were in contrast to how good we are that's i mean and of course much of history is written that way too as the inevitable moral progress for people who can see the you know proper path of history so and a lot of science fiction is written this way <laughs> in showing that the moral trends and attitude trends over the last few centuries continue on into the future and make an even better future Except for the villains who re- insist on retaining old
1: style habits. Wait, that's not. I, I was going to say previously that's not the kind of fiction I read, but science fiction is the fiction I read, and that also seems to be that seems to be quite false, right? Most of the science fiction I read is uh, quite dystopian. They they're not fans of the future.
0: <laughs> oh, if if we, isn't we fail, that, isn't that to the dominant category of science
1: fiction by now?
0: So, you know, there's many warnings about how the future will be terrible if we allow the bad trends today to continue. So, like, people are happy to criticize the rise of corporations and profit and inequality and even technology as the terrible things that will destroy us all in the future. Uh, Because those are things that forgers aren't very fond of. Um, So, but if you think of, like, the culture novels or Star Trek As presenting more ideal futures, they are presenting more forager futures.
1: Okay, that's interesting. Is Star is Star Trek a forager future? Yeah, because it's hard to say while while varying technology so highly, right? I guess they are they are kind of like going out. They are like observing these different civilizations and supposedly not (laughs) supposed to not interfere with them. Right. Well, so the
0: key features of the Star Trek world is that everybody, you know, is just comfortably rich, right? They, they do not have resource constraints and they do not feel resource constraints. And uh, so most of the Star Trek world is back home enjoying their leisure and comfortable, you know, rich existence. And we don't see very much of them, but what we see is that they're all rich and comfortable and peaceful and right. artistic, etc. That's what we see of life back home. And then there are some of these people who go off on adventures, but they are not going because of resource constraints. It's not like they couldn't find another job. And they are not sort of using markets or even forced to just uh, make their decisions among them. You know, they have leaders, but their leaders are loved, beloved by all. And um, if there's war, it's out there caused by other outside forces of aliens far, you know, who haven't gotten to the new thing and you know when they contrast the federation culture to alien cultures it's usually a contrast between more forager and less forager like cultures the aliens the klingons the romulans are usually quite explicitly modeled after some more ancient style culture
1: in our history right <laughs> yeah uh maybe this is the way to get to the payoff right what is what is the world mob?
0: World mob is the world government you forgot to look for. (laughs) (laughs) That is, you know, for a while now, people have wondered, will we have a world government? Should we have a world government? And people have been pretty anxious about that possibility, pretty worried even about it. And so the world has been careful not to produce a very explicit, clear world government. But (laughs) in that same time period we have created world communities wherein people in those communities see themselves mostly as part of those world communities and then have a lot of conformity and social pressure and gossip and status rankings within those world communities that basically makes a world mob or world community. And that is a kind of governance (laughs) in the sense that mobs govern themselves, they do things and they enforce things on each other even if they don't have some central actor who hands out orders. And that's what we've produced in the world over the last century. We have produced a world mob, a way in which in most of the world, most important things are done the same way, roughly, because everybody else in the world is watching. And if you do it very differently, the rest of the world will disapprove and gossip about you and lower your status and socially shame you. And most people in the world don't want that. So for example, if you look at most policy areas like um, nuclear power, electromagnetic spectrum, airline safety, car safety, uh, traffic regulation, um, medical experiments, organ sales, just a wide range of areas you'll see it's done almost the same everywhere in the world with very little experimentation of alternatives. And a very dramatic example of this world mob was how the world responded to COVID. There was a world community before COVID, um, you know, experts about how to deal with pandemics, and they had some consensus that masks weren't very useful and that travel restrictions weren't very useful. And then as soon as COVID showed up, world elites all got together and started talking about COVID. And a few weeks later, they came to the consensus pretty strongly about the world that you should have masks and that you should have travel restrictions. And then the the usual experts caved and changed their mind and adopted these new recommendations. And then everybody did it the same way worldwide, pretty much. That's the world mob.
1: Right, that's quite interesting because in that case, you had, I think, one of the primary actors that might defy the world mob, that being China, kind of leading the way in the world mob copying China, right? To, to a substantially less effective results right and and maybe for good because now that now china is still going and and the rest of the world stopped but uh i'm not sure though because we do still live in a mostly market economy right there are still benefits to defying the world mob right in the areas
0: that the mob will allow So regulation is pretty uniform around the world. So regulation sets the limits on what kind of innovations you're allowed to try.
1: I don't know. This is kind of the bullish case for China, right? So and and you can say like, all right, they they've like, they've uh, they've gone back on some of the more aggressive genetic editing stuff. Some uh, some of the more aggressive um, polygenic score stuff. I actually talked to Steve Shu somewhat recently about this. But I, I still think number one, they're still, more, or they're still more willing to research those types of things. And I think they're, they're going in a much more interesting direction. They're kind of starting to deviate now with artificial intelligence as well. Uh, but I, I do think that China in this, in this kind of analysis of the world, right, China is kind of this, um, this kind of like insurance, insurance protocol, right?
0: Well, there's variation in across the world in the degree of conformity to the world mob. And so whoever are the outliers on that variation might be the places you'd put the most hope for escaping from its pressures. I mean, clearly at the largest scale, growth continues worldwide, right? Yes. The worst case outcome is you have a world mob that is so constraining of behavior that growth halts and growth even reverses. And we're not there yet. So even though we are, we put a lot of areas of innovation just off the table, where you're not allowed to innovate them. Clearly, we have a lot that you are allowed to innovate on, and there's a lot of growth. So that's, in a sense, the positive spin. Is the world mob is still limited in its ambitions
1: and, you know, scope of enforcement. Right. This is actually, I don't know. This is the trouble that I've been having both researching and I think in the conversation we've had so far is that these kind of ideas of like the the world mob and uh, and forager values, they're they're kind of vague, right? They're they're kind of like mostly based off of sentiment. They're, they're not very they're not very propositional at all. And that kind of makes them bad is that kind of makes them like difficult to uh to to apply in practice but it also makes them very, very difficult to basically to nail down and to discuss explicitly, right? Well,
0: I think being a social scientist or even a human scientist requires that you master a different set of concepts than if you were say a chemist or civil engineer. I think once you have mastered those concepts then these things can be nearly as usefully grounded but if you are outside of these areas then you might find these words somewhat you know hard to pin down but it depends on you know for example look if you were not a civil engineer you might think energy what is energy it sounds kind of vague to me like fire has energy okay but <laughs> right you don't realize that you actually do have relatively precise definitions for some of these things and that the other words people are using are often just vaguely indicating what's more precise going on so um, I think, you know, for many of these things, we have enough precision that we can usually em- employ a concept, but I also grant that if you don't have enough context, you won't be able to see that very well.
1: What's a what's a question that I could ask you that would really clearly distinguish to, to people what, what a world mob is and how it differs from, say, what, what we typically think of as a government?
0: Well you should just think about you know gossip in your world almost all of you live in worlds of gossip in your church in your company right in your club you're familiar with this idea that people talk to each other and they gossip about each other and that there's a sense of status which is how people think of someone in terms of their prestige or power and that when people gossip they tend to come to an agreement about those things Through gossip, people also tend to come to agreements about which things should be praised and which things should be criticized. And this is just an ancient human habit by which humans informally. And in fact, you could say in most say companies, the gossip in the firm is one of the most powerful forces there is. People at the top are focused on trying to manage and manipulate the gossip in order to get things to go their way. They don't get their way mostly by just issuing commands they get their way by managing the gossip. Uh, So gossip is this very powerful social force. And of course, one of the main things people gossip about is who to blame or praise, and then who who to respect or denigrate. That is, how high or low is any one person? So humans have just had this mechanism for a very long time. We continue to use it over and over again. But up until recently, you have had separate worlds of gossip. There'd be gossip in a city, there'd be gossip in a firm, gossip in a club, but these weren't integrated into a single world community of gossip until recently. And so you might have two nations fighting a war, each of which gossiping internally, but the gossip in one nation of the war, is isn't really penetrating much into the gossip in the other nation war, right? They're not coming to a common agreement about the war. Similarly, you could have gossip in two different firms and those just have very different worlds of gossip. And then you know they aren't gonna merge into a common community of gossip where they all agree about most of the major events in those two firms. So the thing to notice in the last few decades is that you have across many policy area world communities that span the globe where their main conversation is within that world community and that they come to the same sort of agreement about what they approve and disagree and who they respect and who they don't in those world communities like all the nuclear power regulators or all the people who regulate electromagnetic spectrum etc.
1: Oh yes uh, those are two particularly unfortunate cases.
0: Where they all agree on how it should be done and they all go to conferences and regularly meet and even move from jobs from one place to another in those communities.
1: Right. And so those communities are able to organize in a way that creates such, such striking uniformity uh, across countries on something like COVID protocols, just, just from gossip.
0: Right. They, so just before the beginning of the pandemic, elites around the world turned their attention to COVID. And they talked about it a lot. Talked about it at parties and at conferences and Twitter and everywhere else. And they came to an agreement relatively quickly where they are all, all on board. You can see they were all on board with the new stance everybody was supposed to agree with. And then everybody followed it.
1: Right, maybe my maybe my disagreement is maybe closer to one from the right or from the kind of like populist political theory, right? That I kind of interact with fairly fairly frequently. Uh, do you know like Curtis Yarvin's idea of the cathedral? Uh, roughly. Yeah. So.
0: He and I did a debate many years ago, but
1: well, interesting.
0: About. Uh, turkey I, I believe, was the debate.
1: Oh, I see. Yeah, turkey versus monarch. That, that would be very interesting. Yeah, that, that would be that would be wonderful to. Uh, yeah, please please send me that, and I'll put it in the show notes as well. Um. To me, this seems like it's missing basically a mechanism of of enforcement, right? It's missing a mechanism. And I think that mechanism of enforcement exists, right? And you can see it very clearly with the EU and the country like Hungary, right? And, and, you know, there is some Hungary stands that that kind of maybe over-exaggerate how well that country is doing economically. But it's very clear, like it's, it's very funny, like all of these columns that are put out with like, Hungary is, uh, Hungary is defying democracy by doing something when like two thirds of its, um, when two thirds of its population votes to, uh, votes to kick out the uh, LGBT organizations and the government does the same thing that the people voted for, right? This is a threat to democracy. Um, it, it's, it's, it's very funny because it's like, okay, you you people not only you not only do not believe in democracy, you think that no one believes in democracy. And it's very and to me like that that's the kind of enforcement mechanism that's happening there. It's like it's it's less of a mob and more of like a more of a bureaucracy, if that makes sense.
0: So I might so as you know, um a standard theory of politics has been that most political systems, at least democratic ones, end up forming a one-dimensional alignment spectrum where people, you know, spread themselves along that one dimension and other dimensions become less important, yes. uh, more homogeneity. So, um, but that doesn't always have to happen in many times and places say like in most smaller cities or towns, you know, there isn't a one dimensional spectrum so much as just elites versus everybody else. Quite often there is a coalition of elites who is ruling, And then there's everybody else. And the question is just how close are you to the top in terms of your connections and allegiance and support? Um, And that could be our future too worldwide. And you could think of these world mobs as moving in that direction. That is often the major difference worldwide is the difference between these world mobs who are coordinated globally and then local groups who wanna deviate from what this world mob thinks. Uh, But these deviants don't coordinate so much. Each area has its own different deviants who deviate in a different direction, and they aren't really that interested in aligning up with the deviants elsewhere, which is part of what gives the world mob its power uh, because it is unified at a global level. Uh, but this is a common form of organization, right?
1: This is missing the critique entirely, right? The the critique is not that there is like no um, global mob or that its opposition is ununified. It's that the global mob draws its power by basically creating these explicit structures that enforce a type of conformity, right? Like the EU commission on like, quote unquote, human rights, right? Is, Is enforcing these, uh, it's not like the global mob is just like solely distributing sure. resources so, or status and that's let's the go only to something reason why more... people are conforming, this is like basically a blackmail tactic.
0: So a, a more familiar example would just be a a city or town with a political machine, right? In a traditional political machine town, there is the dominant party who runs the machine And then they just keep winning elections over and over again because they're dominant. And then the people who are closest to the center of that machine are people who are not only respected by this mob and this this community of discussion around the machine, but who have important levers of power in that world, right? The chief of police or the head of the department of transportation, et cetera, right? Political machines, the people who are most important, are the head of those organizations that help the machine to stay in power. So the claim is that's happening now at a more of a global level. Not just that there's a world community of talkers, but the people who are most listened to in this world community of talkers, yes, are people who have positions of power in the world. They're CEOs, they run Davos, they run a nuclear regulatory agency in some place, et cetera. When you invite people to come to these major social events where the world mob gets together, you need to be somebody to be there, right? You either need to have a reputation that a lot of people like to hear you talk or you need to represent some organization.
1: Okay, so here's the distinction I'm trying to draw, right? And I think I agree with you that that's what's happening, right? The question is whether the blackmail induces a global mob or the global mob induces a blackmail, right? Like they basically co-evolve. the question is whether whether this circumstance arises. I, I think the way you phrase it, right? When you, especially when you phrase it in terms of like forager values, this is just kind of like something that naturally arises with human beings, right? And I'm taking a much more kind of um, local or much more kind of circumstantial view where I think that the circumstances arises because there are, that there are explicit, explicit structures uh, that are formed that are quite difficult to build, right? These, these quite complex bureaucracies that, that are literally designed to enforce uh, some of these values across, across international countries or across international so, relationships. So let's countries. just
0: look at the difference between a say company of a hundred people, a firm, or just a local group neighborhood of discussion, say, in a homeowners association or something, right? Okay. Um, both of them have a lot of gossip. For sure. <laughs> both of them, in both of them, the gossip will tend to produce a consensus that most respected people think on a large range of topics. In both of them, they will form a consensus about like what policies to praise or criticize. And in both of them will form a consensus about who who is most respected among them and who is most vilified. The conversation in both will do all those things, but nevertheless, the conversation will look different in the firm because people with positions of power in the firm, formal roles in the firm, will have more influence over the conversation in the firm. And they will be able to then have a smaller group of people who push changes that then get widely adopted in the firm and that the gossip approves of. Now, sometimes in a firm, the people at the top will push something that the gossip disapproves of. Sometimes there's a conflict there, but actually pretty rarely. uh, Because either the people at the top will cave and give in to the gossip or the gossip will give in and cave to the people at the top. It's It's rare for that conflict to last very long. So now we can admit that the form of organization does change things, but we can also notice that this world of gossip and conformity pressures and agreeing on things is pretty robust human phenomena across a wide range of
1: contexts. So. Man, like, here is here is why I think this is just not a particularly useful way of looking at this, right, is that, so So we understand that, let, let's say, I think we like more or less agree that there's this kind of mob-like structure, okay, maybe it's, it, it's a mob with certain kind of apparatuses, like the firm, right, and that apparatus also has a mob, right, and... We're basically trying to use this and say, like, all right, how can we change, like, international relations, or how can we change decision-making structures to be basically less mob-like, right, or to to generally be better, right? Less conformist, less risk-averse, and so on, right? is, Is that what you're also trying to do?
0: Well, I would like more... Variety, more experimentation, and then more better incentives. So, the more that everybody just must follow the consensus, the less we get experimentation or the less we get adaptation to better things. So, you know, right, exactly. So, a capitalist economy where different firms are allowed to follow different strategies, offer different products and different ways to market them, that allows experimentation and, you know, incentives to uh, pick the best. In a world where the mob is such such a strong opinions about products that only one product's allowed to be offered, we get much less of that innovation.
1: Right, so if you're looking at basically a system, right, you're looking at a system of international relations on a, or not international relations in a kind of military sense, but uh, basically like an international system of like some kind of policy structure, right? Whether it be public health, whether it be, I don't know, nuclear energy, whatever, right? And you're looking at what is preventing that um, that experimentation. I would say that the key mechanism that is preventing that experimentation is is the blackmail bureaucracies. It's it's not the fact that you have discussion and status. Now maybe the blackmail bureaucracies act because they they have differences in in, in beliefs and status and they're and the people running them are conformists but to me it's much more useful to look at this object that is actually making you know decisions and material inflicting material costs on people who think differently rather than just noting that you know people think differently if that makes sense like the the, the counterfactual here is like if you had if you had basically like a very classical liberal mob as kind of, uh, self-contradictory that is, right? If you had a mob that was basically just like it, it, it would like make fun of people. It would, um, it, it would insult people. Uh, so, so you know, like basically the online right, um, who would make fun of people, but would not actually act to strip them of their power, and would not actually act to to remove their enemies from power, right? You can imagine that being a world that is. And I would I, I would say I would bet very strongly that that would be a world with much more experimentation, even though there are mob dynamics, but there aren't the, the bureaucracies who enforce those those kind of restrictions.
0: So I think we can agree that both of these kinds of things can restrict and do restrict behavior and it's about judging when you can have exceptions. So if you you know if you just have mobs, say, without other powers, then somebody can say run out of town or live off on the periphery of town or up in the hills or something, right? And then escape. Whereas if you have a centralized state that monitors everyone and can follow everybody, there aren't necessarily places like that you can go to escape, right? Right. Um, If we're looking at the global level, if we look at these things where there's strong coordination around the globe, they do tend to be things that you need a lot of capital and a lot of centralization to be able to do, you know, nuclear power plants or airports or things like that. Yeah. And so when, you know, there's enough of a cost to do it at all, and you need a fair bit of local approval to do it all, then the mob worldwide can be sufficient to enforce this conformity. Whereas in something where it's just easier to deviate anywhere in the world, the world mob has less power but they still have substantial power, right? Maybe they can't stop you from doing it somewhere, but they can stop you from like getting into Harvard and doing it or getting in the New York Times and doing it, right? They can use their centers of power and at least keep this deviation out of those.
1: Right. So so the reason why I say this, right, is that let's say you're a not-so-hypothetical listener. You're like an ambitious, you're like an ambitious... (laughs) Uh, I don't know, like 25-year-old listening to the From the New World podcast, right? And you're thinking, man, there's a lot of conformity in the world. There's, there's a lot of, um, quite frankly, just very poor decision-making. And I want to change it. I think that there's a way that that person listens to that and thinks, man or like listens to this idea of the global mob and thinks, man, human beings are terrible and also there's no way I can win, right? And and then there's an alternative story that he could hear which actually thinks, or, or that points out, wait a minute. Okay, what are the mechanisms that the global mob uses to actually enforce these? To what degree can we limit or destroy such mechanisms? And my claim is that you can actually destroy these mechanisms. Um, fairly consistently uh, and fairly strategically and destroy
0: sounds a little strong but you may circumvent in a case for example that the mob doesn't reach everywhere all the time with full force that's different than like exterminating the mob <laughs> making it no longer effect
1: yeah the, the kind of like legal structures that exist that give the mob power those are the things that I mean destroying in this aspect the, mod, the, the mob can can survive, for now.
0: Well, unfortunately, the legal mechanisms that the mob has been using have been slowly increasing in strength, um, not decreasing. So, yes, I yes in principle, they could go the other way, but I haven't seen them do so. But on any of the different ways that the mob has its influence, uh, we could imagine it reversing. Uh, but there is the question, will it? or more where can you find places to innovate that matter? Um, So, you know, there are things you can innovate on that nobody cares about, and then you're allowed really pretty free brain and innovating
1: because they don't
0: really threaten anybody's sense of identity or what they think is important or things like that. So maybe the more interesting question is where can you innovate where they might be inclined to feel threatened, but they still wouldn't actually
1: stop you that seems like Uh, a pretty interesting question what's the answer to it
0: (laughs) well um so obviously one thing is just status prestige so in this world of the mob uh unfortunately you know they a lot of the way they decide things is by prestige they decide who has how much prestige and then High-prestige people are allowed to do things that low-prestige people are not. So unfortunately, um, this is one of those trade-off compromise questions. You might say, well, the, the best way to rebel against the world is to not usually rebel and pick your battles carefully. Right? So rather than, like, rejecting the mob every time at every turn, no matter what it says, you could mostly not mind and sort of go along except when you choose your battle carefully and then because you have enough prestige and you know fundamentally just you're right about something you can win there. So that's in some sense the most standard conservative advice the world ever gives but it's not wrong. You know, the safest most reliable way to win against the mob is to mostly be in the mob. And you know, choose carefully ways to deviate that it doesn't even know that it's it's uh, being you know overturned it just thinks it's following a new fashion now
1: right this is uh Vaclav havel's power of the powerless right uh, this was mentioned by my uh, the guest last week actually
0: <laughs> uh but and... like another approach is to find allies That is, there are established groups of people who see themselves as contrary in particular ways, and then you can get them to see you as one of them, and then you can get support from those groups rather than try to do it all by yourself. And there are many such groups, and they are energized by the fact that they see themselves as different from the typical world mob person in some key way. They are unified by that difference.
1: Tell me if you think this comparison is unfair but to me this this seems kind of like the question is culture downstream of politics or is politics downstream of culture right you have the situation where i think especially a lot of conservatives have, have been complaining about this like amorphous thing the culture like what is the culture uh and i think more recently people like Christopher Caldwell Richard Hanania have come along and actually uh, pointed out like look guys these are the laws that have created uh, the cultural aspects that you that you start to despise and in fact what we can do is we can repeal those laws and to we, me this is a similar and kind of we situation might be able to. we, we can... haven't done it yet <laughs> yeah I mean I mean this is all this is all stuff that's been surfacing in the last like I don't know four to five years right and, and you know like, like hypothetically, Trump could have could have done more, right? But yeah, he, he definitely he definitely dropped the ball on that one. Uh, but you're looking at the circumstance basically, right? Where where conservatives are complaining about like this this vaguely amorphous thing, and there are actually like very practical things that you can do about it. Maybe it's it's maybe you're solving the same problem, right? Like maybe I completely agree with you that like okay, we have to solve the problem of the global mob, but the way that you actually solve that problem is by basically destroying some federal bureaucracies and having some fun destroying those federal bureaucracies.
0: I think you should see the world as lots of parts that co-evolve, and the challenge is to opportunistically find the temporary levers that give you unusual influence. And they aren't always the same things, and they aren't even always to see. So. Some things in the world change slowly and other things change fast, right? Well, which do you want to focus on? Well, it depends, right? The things that change slowly are therefore, or sorry, the things that change fast are easier to change, but then their changes don't last as long, right? So you could make a new pop song that everybody talks about. And then, you know, a month later, everybody's forgotten about your new pop song because the next pop song is on. So you have more opportunities to make the next pop song, but maybe it doesn't matter as much. Maybe laws that last for decades are enormously influential, but then you don't have very many times when you can influence them. They don't come up for revoting very often, right? So that, But then sometimes things appear that are temporarily plastic, but which will solidify soon. That is, things that are easy to change now and will be hard to change later. Those are the obvious places to focus on for leverage. Uh, You have to find those things, right? Something that's hard to change now will be easy to change later is exactly the opposite. It's exactly the worst thing to focus on. So sometimes technologies or other sorts of substantial changes create these opportunities, things that are easier to change at one time or another, and then you can identify these and jump on them. But in general, there's no easy answer to where is the easiest place to exert change because there's just lots of people who want to influence change and they're all competing with you looking for these opportunities. And so you do have to find them before they do.
1: Right. So what is, what is the best example of this in, in let's say like the past 10 years?
0: Past 10 years. Um, well, I mean, clearly we're in the midst of a sort of religious revival that many people didn't anticipate, right? So clearly, do, had do you, you mean, know, do
1: you mean uh, do you mean wokeness or the actual yeah. religious revival? No,
0: I, I, but I, I mean it is
1: actually a religious revival.
0: That's yeah, that's I, what I mean, religion like, there, is. In there our are worlds. some
1: like Catholics listening to this who think that we're in the middle of like an actual religious revival, and, and you know I, I'm pretty skeptical of that. <laughs> that's the only reason I'm asking.
0: Well, I don't know to what degree Catholic is intersecting with the larger wokeness movement maybe it has a substantial intersection no no no
1: like they think that there's like an actual like religious like christian like normal christian revival uh okay that's happening but sorry but if you
0: think of say the 1960s as a period of cultural revival uh then you know this is another period like that um so if you had known that this was coming then you could have been on the ground floor of it and been extra influential right but of course who was to know, obviously say crypto is another example, right, Uh, something that started out small and people didn't expect to get so big and then got really big. Um, So there's just, you know, there's a lot of these things where people make their bets on what will get big and sometimes they're right and they have outsized influence.
1: Hmm, That's interesting.
0: So I would say 20 years ago, or 30 years ago, you might have said, you know, China. China is going to just keep growing big. And I think 30 years ago, people didn't quite believe just how fast China would grow, right?
1: Right. I think I think the bets on India and especially the Indian diaspora—that's uh, kind of similar. That's kind of similar position as China is back then, where there are a lot of people. I mean, you see, like Tyler doing this, right? Tyler Cowen, uh, really looking to really looking to invest in India. Uh, many many people doing this. Uh, and I think they're right to.
0: Uh, so I'm so, more of an intellectual. So the kind of bets I try to make her about where the future potential intellectual topics are. Oh? oh. And so I'm, I'm just always looking for what I think are neglected important things that bec- by their nature will eventually have to be something a lot of people care
1: about. Right. It might not so be soon, is, but yeah. You know,
0: Right. And there's just a lot of intellectual topics that just seem by their nature so narrow and, you know, small that it's just hard to imagine them ever becoming very big. And then there's other topics that seem by their nature just obviously big, even if nobody's talking about them now.
1: Yeah. And for the audience, that would be a lot of the stuff we talked about in the first episode. Uh, the uh, the uh, prediction markets, uh, aliens, uh, brain emulation. Is there anything else? There definitely is, right? Oh, lots and lots. Sure. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, we definitely
0: come across them in in particular cases. But, you know, in some sense, that's what most of the things I talk about are things that I think are neglected and important. So, like, for example, in the last few months, I decided to think about the sacred. Hmm. And you might think, like, sacredness is obviously really important. You might think, well, people have just done that to death, right? There couldn't be that much more to do about it. That would be a reasonable presumption about most things that are that prominent. But when I looked into it, I found, no, there hadn't actually been that much good stuff on the sacred. So I saw that as a neglected opportunity to actually make some progress. Which, of course, I'd be happy to tell you about if you're interested.
1: Yeah, for sure. So what progress have you made on the sacred?
0: Well, the first thing to think about the sacred is what is it? Like just empirically, what goes along with this concept? So, so the reason why I was interested in the sacred was the fact that it just gets in my way a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm often thinking about topics and making proposals where it seems like people react to it negatively because we're touching on something sacred. And so I finally decided, well, let's figure this thing out. Maybe <laughs> by understanding it better, we could better you know, deal with it. So then the first challenge is just to come up with some correlates of the sacred. What are the things that tend to go along with things people call sacred? And, you know, there's a, a number of standard ones that aren't that hard to uh, to list, but, you know, we can go through them. We could say, first of all, you know, the sacred uh, things are are valued, right? Uh, we value sacred things. That is, we have reverence and joy and awe for them. Sacred things are larger than ourselves. We sacrifice for them. And then we tend to think that sacred things are more pure than other things, more enduring than other things. And in general, sort of more idealized and simplified than other things. We simplify the things we treat as sacred. If we have a sacred goal, we we do it for itself. It's not for some other reason. It's not an instrument, it's it's an end. Uh, For sacred things, aesthetics tend to matter more, and intuition. we're supposed to relate, relate to them more by by feeling, feel the force, Luke, as opposed to analysis and conscious thought. Um, we often have special days and, and places and rituals that are made special by their connection to the sacred. Sacred things are, are tend to be set apart. You're not supposed to mix them with non-sacred things. There's supposed to be a clear line. There's not really supposed to be conflicts between the sacred. There's, you know, you don't worry about getting too much of one that will hurt another one because they're supposed to all go together. You're not even supposed to trade sacred things for other things. So they're not supposed to have prices or money prices, certainly. Um, not even supposed to try to measure with numbers. And... Um, say, with respect to the priests of the sacred, the people who are the experts in it, we either go to one extreme, like with democracy, where we deny there are any priests or that anybody would know better than anybody else, or go to the other extreme, like with medicine, where we say everybody should just trust these guys. And the last correlate of the sacred, I think, is the one I'm going to use to build a theory of it, is to say groups often bond to each other by seeing sacred things the same together. We often feel like we are tied to people because we both agree on what's sacred, how. So those are some of the main correlates of the sacred. So that's the thing to explain. So if you're asking for discipline or doesn't this sound arbitrary, I'm going to say, well, I'm going to kind of come up with a theory that's as simple as possible that explains as many of these correlations all at once as I can. That's my goal. And I think I've got enough of those there. That is, I've got it. That's not a trivial task to explain those correlates. Are we on with the, with the
1: problem? Do you agree? Right, so what is what is the explanation for, uh, for, for those different things?
0: Okay, so I'm going to build my explanation on something called construal level theory. It's a set of theories in psychology that says that when we look at, say, a scene, Some of the things in the scene are big and up close and we see them a lot of details and other things in the scene are far away, small, and that we see them with very little detail. And the key idea is that we just have different ways of thinking about these different kinds of things in a scene and a continuum in between. And the key idea is abstraction. So if you look at how the brain is organized, the standard ways of organizing the brain just tend to have different brain areas organized by their abstraction levels. That is some, some areas are just taking in raw input, and others are thinking of high-level abstractions. So the key idea of construal level theory is that when we look at stuff up close, we look at the details of it. And so we're looking at it very concretely, whereas when we look at things far away, we know only a few things about them. The few things we know are very abstractly described, and so we think about things far away abstractly. And the observation of the psychologist is that we think about things not just near in space, but also in time and chance and importance and social distance and sort of theory generality and goal generality. Um, And that whenever we think about something as near in one way, we tend to assume it's near in these other ways or far in one way, we tend to assume it's far in these other ways. And that just plays out consistently in how we think about things. So if I tell you about a scenario that happens far away in space, you'll tend to assume it happens far away in time. And again, the key idea is we just think about these two kinds of things differently. And we have a whole bunch of correlates we've found about how we think about these two things. But the main idea is far away things are seen as abstractly, without much detail, and crudely because they're not very important. Far away stuff doesn't matter so much to it. So we're willing to make some crude heuristics about it, not think about it very consciously. And there's just not much to consciously think about. Um, Whereas the stuff up close, we have the detail that we can look at the detail, we work on it that way. And and we just know a lot of things. Like for example, the color red tends to invoke near mode and blue tends to invoke far mode because in the sky, far away things look blue. And in a big room with its echoey, that we tend to be in far mode because the volume, of the sound makes us think of a big space, whereas in a small space, the echoes make us look more in near mode. You know, an example would be say, sex is near, love is far. Uh, You're in very near mode in sex, in a relatively far mode with love, where you think about it more abstractly. Okay, so this is Construal Level Theory. And it explains lots of things, and I'm going to explain the sacred in terms of construal level theory, but I'll pause and say, are are, are you with me?
1: Yeah, for sure. All right,
0: so here's the key idea. We want to see some things that are very important to us the same so that we can bond together. That's the key social function of the sacred so that we can all feel we are part of the same community because we see some things the same. You know, the things we treat as sacred are, say, nature, medicine, nation, school, friends, charity, sex, love, art, law, gods, family, birth and death, liberty, democracy, you know, a bunch of these are the kinds of things we see as sacred. And so different communities see different things as sacred, but um, these are the things that many communities want to see the same in order to bond together. Now, the problem here you see with construal level theory is that if you are seeing the same thing from close up or far away, you will see it differently. So say love is sacred and you look at my love life and I look at my love life. Well, I look at it up close and you look at it from far away. So we'll see it differently. And so we won't be able to treat it as sacredly because we won't see it the same. Or same with medicine. You, I see my medical treatment up close personally and you see your med- my medical treatment from far away. You will like draw different conclusions and have different attitudes because We're seeing them from different distances. Okay, but if it's important enough that we see love or medicine the same so that we can be part of a community that is united around seeing it the same, we have a simple solution here, which is to take things that are up close but still see them from far away. That is to use far mode to think about things even when they're up close. And the claim is that explains most of these correlates of the sacred. Sacred things are thing, say things where even when they're up close and very important to us, we still look at them from afar and see them as if they were far away. And by doing so, we make it much easier to see it the same as other people see it. We then all see love the same or medicine the same, even if we're not seeing them very accurately. We're not attending much to the details, but we feel like we agree about them.
1: Right, there's this quote, I'm blanking out on who it's by, but uh, that a society is something that's decided to forget something in common, right? So you have these circumstances where t- to coordinate requires basically um, a, a kind of like collective stupidity in a way, um, but it's a, it's a bit more than that, right? Uh, right. So, so how, how does this relate to basically like the willingness to deny kind of like objective measurable facts?
0: Well, so for example, with respect to medicine, uh, people are (laughs) uncomfortable with uh, using statistics to judge the relative effectiveness of different medical treatments, or using prices to judge their relative value and who should get them. Uh, We would rather have just the simple idea that everyone should get all medicine that doctors say is good. All medicine is valuable, so everybody should get it all and we shouldn't distinguish between who gets it, and we shouldn't distinguish the treatments. And by that sort of simplifying, then we can agree together about medicine, who should get it and what it is. It is whatever the doctors say is good, and everybody should get. And we just refuse to consider that maybe some people should get some of it and other people shouldn't, because that would require us attending to these details, which would then divide us
1: Right. But I don't, I'm not sure that that's strictly due to the division, right? You might just argue that doctors assign these probabilities better, right? And the doctors actually do kind of use these statistics. I mean, we can argue, and I think we both agree that there are many cases where where the medical establishment fails. But, you know, on average, I think the average doctor is much better at assigning these probabilities and actually making those decisions and diagnoses than the average person. So so like, isn't, isn't this a situation where you kind of are being rational, right?
0: Well, you could certainly say there are many cases where if you have an expert, you don't need to think about it as much. But say, you know, a simple thing would be to compare auto repair to body repair, right? Uh, we are do not treat auto repair as sacredly as we do body repair. So people are more willing to be skeptical about their auto repair shop. They're more willing to ask whether any given repair is worth the money. Even though in both cases there's these experts who know more than you.
1: Mm. And you can argue that in the case of the auto repair, they actually know strictly more than you, right? Whereas in, in the case right. of your body, you might feel something that's less known, whereas, you know, you're looking at the same car, right? And they just have a keener eye. Um yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right. Uh, so this might actually relate to something that we kind of very briefly mentioned earlier, which is like organ markets, right? So I think our mutual friend Richard Hanania has made the case that organ markets are, are kind of like beyond obvious in terms of like a free win, uh, are basically like, I, I his words, not mine, but like, are like a political IQ test, Right.
0: We have many of those, unfortunately, but yes, Oregon (laughs) Markets sound like one of them. Um, I have another one that I've been thinking, proposing even lately that I think has an even larger thing. So I have this proposal for what I call tax career agents, and I just did a back of the envelope computation in a post recently to say they have roughly a $15 trillion present value for the policy.
1: Amazing. So, uh, for
0: the audience, uh, what 15, are 15, 15 trillion dollar bill on the left on the sidewalk, basically, that no one's picking up? And I say that's worth even more than organ sales, which are valuable, but it's hard to tell you the 15 trillion dollar value for organ sales. So, the tax career agent is the idea that your government, because they take 20% of your income on average, is a career agent for you. That is, you know, people in acting or music or other sorts of uh, professions where they typically have agents, those agents typically take 10 to 15% of their income. Hmm. And then with that 10 to 15%, that, you know, induces them to give you various services and to just generally promote your career. Um, so the question is uh, what's the government doing for you? <laughs> They're a tax career agent, but they seem to be doing a terrible job of it, right? They're not doing it remotely as much as these other agents are doing for you, even though they get 20%. So the simple proposal is to fire them and transfer the role to somebody else. And you might think, but the government needs tax revenue, which they do, but we can still transfer this and get the government their tax revenue by auctioning off the right to get this revenue. That's the simple idea. At the moment, you send checks to the government, and then the government cashes them and adds it to their revenue, right? Instead, we can divert this stream of payments to whoever wants it, and that other person would win an auction to be the person who gets that stream of payments, and then that auction price will be the present value of those future payments, which then the government gets to have immediately. So the government's already borrowing money, which is a way they take future money and convert it into present money. Here's a different way to do the same thing. Instead of getting the future payments, they instead get the auction value at the present of all those future payments. And then somebody else, the person who bought your payments is now your career agent. They are now going to get 20% of your income on average. And they now have an incentive to promote you and to advise you about your career. And it's free. Nobody loses anything in this transfer. We can even give you the complete veto power. This thing doesn't even happen unless you approve it. And we can even give you more powers to help you transfer this role to somebody else if you don't like your current agent. And so I've written about this. And the key idea here is, look, how much value is there here? Well, if you have an agent who, say, gets 10% of your income, we ask what percentage of their compensation comes through the channel of, in general, promoting you because they would just get more income if your income goes up. Uh, You know, I did some survey and people say basically roughly 15% of their compensation comes in the form of improving your uh, overall income, promoting that. And so if they had 20% instead, you know, so 15% of 10% is (laughs) 1.5%. Doubling that for a 20% age, it would be about 3%, except, you know, there's a number of factors by which this might be an overestimate because, you know, maybe there's social externalities, maybe they, the job, you know, they're increasing your wage doesn't increase your utility, etc. So if we take it down to maybe only 1%, still a career agent can increase the value of your job by 1%, you know, but worldwide, well, that's $400 billion a year if everybody had them and the present value of that's 15 trillion. And there you go, uh, a huge value. So basically, Everybody could have a free career agent, cost them nothing, cost nobody anything. It's just free. And they would, on average, increase your the value of your job by 1% to you. And that's worth $15 trillion worldwide. And right. there it is. It sits, on the, it sits on the sidewalk. Nobody wants to pick it up.
1: Is there a potential conflict here where governments want to tax people who who earn more at higher rates. And that's kind of difficult to determine ahead of time. I don't know. You can see this being solved pretty easily, though. But
0: but again, the auction gives you the present value of all that, right? If you have a progressive income tax and rich people pay more, well, then if you buy the auction value of a richer person, then you get that more money. So you're willing to pay more for it. So then the government gets the value for that.
1: Oh, I see. So the so the company collects based on still the existing taxes.
0: Right, right. Whatever the taxes are, they are still paid. And then they're just diverted to this other company. The other company has no powers over you whatsoever. They can't choose your tax rate. They can't choose to enforce taxes on you. They can't make you do anything. All they can do is advise and promote.
1: Okay, interesting. <laughs>
0: So it's another example like with organ sales of just a clear win that the world's not very interested. And in like organ sales, you might think, well, at least that feels icky, right? But I struggle to see what's so icky about an agent. When lots of people already have agents. We're just giving you the option to have one. If you don't want one, you can just say no. So what's the obstacle here? What don't you yeah, like? And
1: I think I, saw, I think I saw something very similar the other day with um, this article on like assisted suicide. And It was just completely shoddy. It it was just so poorly done and just full of, like, you know, cultural left-wing pronouncements. And just, like, quite frankly, yeah, just, like, just absurdly low quality. And you had, like, all of these people. You had, like, these, like, conservative. You had, like, Ross Douthat. You had, like, Barry Weiss retweeting these. And it's like, oh, this is, like, this is literally that study where people, people, don't don't recognize like the quality of evidence because of their ideological priors
0: yeah i so, didn't see that I, study but i know there's a lot of of course bad studies and a lot of poor evaluation of quality people are sloppy about how they think about politics clearly they don't think yeah. about them in as careful ways but that's partly because these are sacred things in a sense and that's Indeed one of the you know successes of this theory of the sacred is it explains why do you get so sloppy when we get to politics. Why aren't you looking at the details and using the details to calculate these things?
1: Right. So the answer is that you're you're using these to unite a group of people instead of to, you know, actually solve the problem.
0: Right. People are more interested in being united by sharing political opinions than by making sure their political opinions match the details.
1: That are available, right? And I, I think that this leads us to back to the world mob point, right? You end up with these people who are maybe specialists, or they might be uh, political leaders, um, big shots, as uh, as we said in the last in the last conversation. But essentially, yeah, those people also—it's strange, right? Because you would expect. I don't know, at least in in terms of business, you might expect people to come to uh, success because they're not necessarily uh, bound by those same incentives to, uh, to, um, to conform rather than to solve the problem. But, you know, here they are, you know, head of like a, head of like a trading, trading firm hedge fund or like, or like, let's say like nuclear company. Right. And those same pressures those same pressures still dominate in your in your theory right
0: i mean almost everyone in our world faces substantial community social pressures right there's almost no one who doesn't uh i think one of the major mistakes most people make about thinking about kings or ceos is to think of them as completely free to make any choices they like right and the fact is they get to their position you know with a coalition that supported them and they need to continue to support their coalition if they want to stay in power. Yes. That means they need to work well with these social groups. I think if you will meet most people you will meet who are high level, powerful people, they are pretty good at these social games and these social skill tasks. Most of the people you and I might meet who have poor social skills are not very high up in the organizations we know about, right?
1: What do you think of Elon Musk? What do you think of his uh, recent um, tactics? Let's say,
0: uh, I I met him once. He he sat down next to me at breakfast once, but not because of me. He just sat down to talk to a table. Um, clearly, you know he's an impressive person in terms of what he's accomplished in business. So you know you have to, you just have to give hats off to him when you look at Starlink and in the spaceships and things like that, right? And even even the electric car company Tesla, right? So the the, the highest level judgment is, look, it's just really hard to find anybody in the business world who you're more impressed with in terms of (laughs) being able to take long shots and making them work so far than than Musk. You know, you got to give that to him
1: now. Right. And building them in the physical world as well.
0: Right. Now, you know, if if you're just to talk to him like an academic would talk to someone and try to see how careful and precise he is. He's not going to be making it up to academic standards and so then we academics might be tempted to look down on him and say he just got there because he was lucky he's sort of clearly a sloppy thinker but i think that's just the wrong way to evaluate i think we academics have to admit that the vast majority of the world chooses not to live up to our high standards (laughs) quite consciously and successfully right the world clearly succeeds mostly everywhere reasoning and thinking, but not in the way academics call rigorous. That's just the fact of the world. As an academic, you might declare they're just doing it all wrong, and somehow you could just make a lot of money if you'd go out into the world and and be an academic in business or charity or whatever else it is, or politics, but I don't think you mean it. I think, you know, (laughs) you'd lose. (laughs) I think, you know, that they're doing it right. So that is just an essential criticism of academic intellectual standards, right? It's a very fundamental criticism. It says, look, when you're actually trying to be effective in the world, these high rigorous standards you have are just not the right standards. And maybe that works for you in academia, maybe it doesn't, but it just doesn't work out here. And that's just hard for we intellectual academics to accept, right? Because we were very proud of having spent all these years learning our high standards and learning to negotiate them and impose them on other people and to think within them. And we do think, you know, they give us a lot of leverage. A lot of, we can see a lot of sloppy things where we would fall off the way if not for these guardrails that we've set up for ourselves. And, you know, we, we are proud of them and the world rejects them. I mean, but what do you think? I ask you: This isn't this like a
1: tough conflict? It is. I wanted to launch off in, no pun intended, in a in a new direction here. But yes, I mean, in terms of Elon, in general, uh, yes, yeah, this, this is quite a tough question. I remember I was I was actually well. I remember this is like five minutes ago. I was drafting this question and I thought, hmm, should I keep it broad or should I, should I try to narrow it down? It might be interesting to see what happens just as a kind of Rorschach test, what happens if I keep it broad. So uh, I guess I should at least have the, uh, I should at least have the uh, humility to subject myself to the same experiment. Uh, what do I think of Elon Musk? Or I think just more just- generally,
0: intellectual standards applied outside of academia academic standards right. I plan out of academia.
1: Cool. Yeah, I basically agree with the traditional critique of uh, intellectual standards, which is basically that a lot of the times they don't work and also they take too long. Uh, this is like most most common with regards to drug approval. I know a lot of people I've had on the show have talked about this and a lot of people in general have talked about this. Where you know after you get the first round of vaccine data, you, sh- you you can be pretty damn sure that there's it's going to cause more far more good than harm, uh, right? And you should just let people not force it on people, but you should just let people you know have the choice to take the vaccine if they want, uh, right? And uh, academic standards in many cases do the same thing. Uh, peer review is just why, <laughs> like it it doesn't seem to accomplish the goal. Of kind of preserving that kind of integrity that it's it, it it claims to do. Like it doesn't even seem to, you know, try, like maybe it tries, but it doesn't seem to have any it, it shows no signs right. of life in terms of actually functioning and doing that. Okay, uh, so
0: now let's ask the question if we agree that academic standards aren't the right standards to apply outside of academia, then we can ask, why are, are they the right standards to apply within academia? Yeah. So yes. what's the difference?
1: Uh, I mean, I don't think that they're the right standards to apply within academia at all. Um, maybe this is not a point in which we disagree. Uh, I mean, I think some to, to some degree, like, you should definitely be have more of a kind of formal st- statistical test regime. Uh, I, I think that that's good. I, I think that uh, statistical significance tests are good. Um, I think the peer review should just basically be scrapped. Um, I, I remember, I forget who it was. who said, "Like peer review is like editorial review. If you try to make it intentionally bad," uh, and, and I think that's that, that's about right. Uh,
0: so then we would like an explanation for why academia has adopted it, even if it's worse. Right. I think, so, I think I think I have an explanation to offer.
1: Yeah, you can go ahead. Uh, I I wasn't
0: sure if you wanted mine, but you can go first. Well, I'd say the standards are the wrong standards for the purpose of figuring out the truth on a subject or being useful on a subject. But my best account of academia is that the main product it's selling is association with credentialed impressiveness. That's what students get. That's what reporters get. That's what funders get when they associate with academics. And that's the product they're buying. And so then you might ask, what are the best methods for producing and selling that product? Not for actually, you know, accomplishing the intellectual goal of some paper or project, as it's stated. And peer review makes more sense for this product. Um, And many other academic processes that don't seem very effective also, I think, make more sense, including unusually high standards of rigor. Uh, That is, excessively high standards of rigor produce high estimates of impressiveness. That is, it's the most impressive people who can manage to meet those high standards of rigor.
1: Right, this is like the the arbitrarily complex statistical models that uh, show risk at zero right before the financial crisis.
0: Right. And peer review shows that not only does somebody look impressive to you or somebody else, that there's a large community that agrees they look impressive. And that's the key yes. product people want. They want to be able to show I am associated with these impressive people. And not only are they clearly impressive, there's just a strong consensus that they're impressive. And therefore, that I am too by association with them. And that's the product you're buying in academia. And that's why. They have these standards that are different from the rest of the world. Different process of selecting and different standards of rigor.
1: Yeah, I I think it's I I think it's one of those situations where I realize this happening, this is just happening a lot in both of our conversations, where we basically agree on the endpoint, but our our mechanism of thinking is is quite different. So with the actually, I think this is the best way to put it. This is something I initially noticed from Richard Hanania, but has grown to be like very important uh, in my analysis of academia. There's this term like imposter syndrome, right? Which is like people feeling like imposters. And Richard Hanania had this wonderful tweet, which is like, our main problem, the main problem with academia is not that people feel like imposters, it's that we have too many imposters. (laughs) And I think this is basically right. So you had a situation where academia was very highly G-loaded. It was filtered to where it's like above, I think term, at the term, like the research level above two standard deviations, especially in some subjects. And you know this, this, this did not last because some politicians decided that universities should be expanded to the general population and that everyone should get a university degree. And of course, this isn't completely trickling down to the research level, but it, it has an influence and it has an influence on publishing in general. And so you get the situation where you're trying to replicate the qu- the quality of results with lower quality people. And what's the easiest way you can at least pretend to do that easiest way you can pretend to do that is by telling them not to do like obviously wrong. things. So peer review is a mechanism of basically saying like, do not do obviously wrong things and completely fails like, at a mechanism of uh, of making people do important things and doing actually impressive things, you know, not just not just kind of um, box checking. And so to me, the 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 root of this is just like expansion to people who don't have who simply do not have the talent or the or the conscientiousness.
0: Okay, so there's two things going on here, and the question is, how closely are they related? One thing is the you know increase in the number of participants in academic sort of processes and therefore their presumptive decline
1: in selectiveness not presumptive right you can look at you can look at SAT well, scores you can look at it uh, you can look at the formal iq tests it, it's not presumptive it, it's well the theory. question
0: is like did, does that go back two thousand years i mean like there might be a trend in the last 30 years, right? But how far back does that trend go? Yeah,
1: this is this is post-war. This is the post-war decline. Right,
0: okay. So it wouldn't explain necessary trends in the few centuries before that or something.
1: Wait, what do you mean necessary? Like, yeah. I, I yeah, don't yeah. think the quality of academia, if anything, the quality of academia went up at least going into the Cold War, right? And, and I think has, I mean, okay. I'm not a familiar, but- I'm not like a detailed... Uh, expert in this, but from my kind of like rough reading of it, has gone up, right. gone up slightly until the Cold War when it went up a lot, and from there it was it was slowly decreasing. Right.
0: Okay, but I mean the key question is first, how does academia differ than the rest of the world, and then the second is how does academia differ over time. So uh, any ways in which academia has just been consistently different from the rest of the world over time wouldn't necessarily be explained by any recent trends. In how academics differ, uh, because this is a constant. So you know you don't so much explain a constant with a trend. And so you could ask, you know, what is it about, you know, standards? So so one sort of, you know, the the, the one the you know our our ancestors were God sort of story has often happens, which is that once upon a time, you know, things worked out well because the kind of standards people were using were appropriate for the kind of people who were there and the motives they had. And that over time, you know, the quality of the people or their motives has declined and that's why things have gone down. And that would be an explanation for things going down if they've gone down. I'm less sure about whether things have gone down or whether things once worked well. I don't really know. That seems hard to tell. But in the well, world... Like in, the,
1: the invention of like semiconductor technologies, of course, was involved with the military as well, but in many ways was in, involved with uh, the universities, propulsion technologies, you know, electrification—sure, right? like all of these came from academia. And, the and, and right. There was like the, there the, the, the era of like innovation during the Cold War or during the Cold War era and during the first or first and second World War era, those were not hypothetical. Those were like very measurable and obvious.
0: Right, but once we realized that you know, the quality could vary enormously. So it could be that these were caused by just a particular period where certain kind of innovations were just much easier to find. Then even if they were bad institutions, they might still have produced these great outcomes. I don't know. Um, So uh, Gordon Tulloch has a story where he says that um, academia long ago had sort of hobbyists who were only there because they really loved it because they could have done other things. And so when there were hardly anybody in academia, and they were mostly hobbyists, then it worked better because there weren't that many people, and they could use some sort of in social, informal social, you know, ways to evaluate each other. And then they, um, you know, were doing because they loved it, and so they were that sort of helped them track doing useful stuff. And then he said, "Well, the problem was that we then had a lot of people who just joined academia because it was a good job, because it expanded greatly." and they didn't actually care fundamentally about the topic, they just wanted a cushy job. And that was his story for why things fell and went down. Uh, you know, you, your story is a little different or the one you were re- relaying that, you know, the kinds of informal standards people once applied would work well for smart people, but wouldn't work well for dumb people. Um, th- that's right. it's all It's not just plausible. that you need
1: to apply more standards, right? And, and you do see the evolution of more standards. So you can like just observe the change right. there. But, but yeah, more so, or less I agree, yeah.
0: Okay, but my fundamental stance toward all these things is to pay less attention to explaining trends and be more interested in ex- just explaining the constants until we get those straight. So my first question is just, why is academia different than everything else? What is it for? And then to think about in those terms, how could we make it better regardless of whether it's getting better or worse is better in the US wait, or wait, Europe. Sorry, I don't
1: understand why why that's more important in this case. I think I think if we can get back to Cold War academia, it would be excellent. Like, it, it, in fact, that might be better in terms of the function of academia, right? That might be better than what we whatever we can do by comparing academia to like something else.
0: Well, if we right? don't have a theory of why it worked well, then then it's you know just a thing of the form. This was going well, and then we changed it. Let's undo the change. But usually, there's too many changes that have happened. You can only undo some of them. And so you have to wonder which of the changes that matter.
1: Wait, so we can actually collect data on this experiment, and I actually am very interested in this issue. Uh, I, I think that you can. Uh, oh, man, I, oh, right, my computer blew itself up. <laughs> um, it didn't actually, but it, it, it uh, blue screened. But uh, so I read this article a bit back uh, criticizing jo- Jonathan Haidt. So Jonathan Haidt had this article, which was basically like, uh university speech codes are driven by social media and i argue that this is actually or university speech cl- codes and decline in quality of research were driven by social media and i'm like this is just historically false and i put together all of this data and it turns out that you know the relaxation of what are basically iq tests right the relaxation of cognitive standards for entering universities uh, is exactly uh, happens exactly in in parallel with the decline in standards And uh, I'll link this in the show notes. And so you're in this situation where, okay, like correlation unequals causation, right? But this is at least a pretty strong candidate. And of course, you have segmentation by fields. So the the fields that are still functioning uh, relatively the best, computer science, math, uh, some of the STEM fields, right, are, surprise, surprise, the most G-loaded ones, right? And I would argue that computer science, Computer science or theoretical physics, and I mean that's its own that's its own thing, right? Or uh, are, are literally the most g-loaded ones, right? So you're in the situation where, and you can look at this across industries as well. Of course, tech is doing uh, excellent. Finance is at least well, finance is su- succeeding in its goal, which is making money, even if it's not good for society, right? And surprise, surprise, these are also the most g-loaded in- industries. So like, there, there, to me, there's like plenty of evidence for this, right? This is not like some kind of like you know this is not so, some some like one hypothesis in many there, I'm, actually... I'm happy
0: to accept the claim that on average higher smarter people make for a better industry that all else equal produces more per person that's that's an easy claim to accept but but still the question is you know how much of the fundamental problem does that solve so you know a lot of say physics for the last half century has been stuck on string theory
1: Right. Yes. And uh, even though they're all very account.
0: smart, and and you know they are still very smart, still you can see collective problems that aren't just about individual smarts. And so that's
1: fair.
0: I, I think the fundamental problem of academia is that the customers are mainly trying to buy, you know, association with credentials impressiveness but the rationale for the prestige that academic gets, they usually give in terms of intellectual progress. So academics usually claim that what they're about is intellectual progress and that's why you should support them and that's what they're giving the world. But most most of the customers are actually buying is just those that prestige by association. Wait,
1: wait, wait. Um, but how, does, how does
0: this solve string theory? Well, because they are impressive. That is, people doing string theory are impressive individuals. And if you- They are? they got a degree with them, then you would be able to say you were associated with an impressive person and then you would look impressive by association. And you do. And reporters who interview them uh, get you know, to quote them as coming from top universities with top degrees and people who give them money get that as association and they're all getting the prestige by association even though the intellectual progress isn't coming as a side effect so much. That's the problem. The problem is the disconnect between the rationale for the prestige and the actual, you know, direct consumer incentives and, you know, pressures that that produces. The customers just want that prestige.
1: Okay, so so the argument here is that uh, scientific stagnation, or at least inefficiency, is due to a misalignment of prestige and, um, prestige and basically like the actual scientific events.
0: Right. So, I mean, this is also true very visibly in fields I've seen, including computer science and physics and other places that the people at the top of academia, the most prestigious people, if you meet them, they are impressive people in terms of their technical abilities that got them to the top of their field. They also use the impressive in terms, of just raw energy, how many hours a week they can put it put in, and things like that, and their ambition, and their determination, and their consistency over time to achieve and win these games. And in fact, if you go to a top school and study under these people, you will, you know, be held to high standards, and you will come out looking impressive too. That's a consistent thing: top school graduates look impressive. That's true.
1: And in um, many cases are actually
0: impressive. Yes, actually impressive people. But yes. you know, being an impressive person is just different than accomplishing something. Those are just two different concepts, right? And so these systems are not designed to actually produce maximal intellectual progress. Some progress happens, but more as a side effect of being impressive. You know, In fact, if you look at referee reports for journal articles, they're almost entirely about whether the thing is impressive and very little about whether it'll actually lead somewhere interesting in the long run
1: right so so how long has this lasted
0: this roughly sounds like this has been going on forever <laughs> this is basically just the product we've always had like back in 1200 when first universities started and they were all commentary on Aristotle there were still really impressive people they just weren't producing much intellectual progress and then various you know fashions changed in which they, fell onto paths where they were producing more intellectual progress, but still as a side effect of being impressive. And then at other times they fall on the path where they're producing less progress, even though they're still impressive.
1: So the wartime era boom, Cold War era boom, that was because basically outside forces made it so that uh, being impressive and actually doing important things were, were correlated.
0: At the beginning of World War II, the United States was losing. Yes. <laughs> what, this is not the usual story people hear about World War II, but it's true. At the beginning of World War II, the U.S. Wait, was the losing. The United
1: States specifically, or you mean like the U.S.? Both, but
0: U.S. specifically, too. We were doing badly. Our weapons were doing badly. Our teams were doing badly. We lost battles. We had stuff that didn't work things were going badly.
1: Okay, so by beginning of World War II, you mean like post-Pearl Harbor?
0: Even before Pearl Harbor, things were going badly, yes. But, I mean, obviously, before we got involved in the war, we weren't seeing so much that things were bad. But, I mean, we had signs. But then okay, once we I actually started mean, like to feel... Technologically right? bad. And organizationally bad. But okay. Th- things just went badly. We were We were just not doing well. And then we managed to get scared and change a bunch of things in order to search for things going better. Right. And within a year or two that worked, that is, we find stark ways to not losing. And I'll bet the similar thing happens with respect to research and other things that they just cranked up the priority on not losing. And right. That was important. That was an amazing thing in the sense that I like, think about COVID for the last three years, right? We did a lot of pretty bad things. We, we made a lot of stupid mistakes with respect to COVID, but nobody got fired. No organizations were even reorganized.
1: We yes, just this is a kept very all the same people in
0: organizations. Writing. Yes, And that's a pretty bad sign about how scared we were. We weren't scared enough to like change stuff.
1: I would say that we were scared enough to change stuff. It's just that the things that were changed were completely outside of democratic control and basically a cult. Uh, This is also a bit of a divergence. I don't know. (laughs) um,
0: Okay, but so I might might be willing to say, look, the United States in World War II early on was an exception in that the leadership was scared and willing to actually change a bunch of stuff.
1: Yes, and, And 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 very importantly had the capacity to change a bunch of stuff.
0: And that probably happened in research, too.
1: Yes, uh, I agree. And, and one of the things that they did was introduce SAT tests or like the, the precursor to the SAT test, basically.
0: And so I'm not sure how to explain why they were willing and able to do that. And other times and places aren't. It might just be random. But that seems somewhat separate from the overall problem of academia, that it's just not very well aligned. But Fundamentally, something like academia is capable of being turned toward other purposes if the funders make that a high enough priority. That is usually the funders are part of the game where all they really want is prestige too. And they just hand the money to whoever is most prestigious and they walk away with the most prestige by association and that's all they wanted. But if in say a time of war, the funder suddenly decides (laughs) they really care about something else other than the prestige, there's room to move.
1: Right, and the incentives were actually aligned, right? Like with the Apollo project, you know, either your rocket blew up or it didn't, and so you got prestige by actually doing that.
0: Right, because it was visible. Yes, outsiders exactly. could notice that. I mean, you know, if today outside, if today say the super collider didn't work so well as it was expected, or didn't give the particles people thought it would, hardly anybody notices. Hmm. Right. But if you promise to make a rocket go to the moon and, and you don't, now you look bad and the leaders look bad and they'll be on on your case to make sure that doesn't happen.
1: Right. I mean, it's kind of worse than that, right? Like mRNA vaccines, they were like a little oversold. Okay, a bit oversold, especially when it came to infection. But they were but they were awesome. Okay, like if you just like if you just didn't have, you know, the overselling at the very beginning, you just said, look, this will reduce death by like 90, 95 percent. And, you know, it'll, it'll have negligible impacts on infection. It'll reduce death and hospitalization by great percentages like that. That is incredibly impressive. And, you know, even even that was demonized, right? Even that was what? Demonized.
0: Thankfully, not for very long, or not sufficiently strongly. But yeah, so so I mean, I think, I mean, we have to give Trump some credit for seeing the prestige value of successfully fielding vaccines soon and giving that a lot of money and priority, right? Right. He did in and fact a lot
1: of just like ideological libertarians in his cabinet. But yeah.
0: Right. So. And I think he got cheated a bit about the credit for that, as you know, at the uh, just before the election when the uh, government refused to release the test results that was showing that it was great. Yeah, for sure. Until after the election, right? So, but he, he was doing the thing we want, which is in a time of crisis, taking some more risks, making outcomes more of a priority, you know, cutting away bureaucracy and obstacles to making something happen.
1: Yeah, and unfortunately, I mean, like,
0: other politicians will learn the wrong lesson because it's not enough to do that if you don't have the rest of the government on board because they can cheat you out of the credit.
1: Right, you have to actually get it done before before the election. Um, part marks don't count. <laughs> well,
0: you yeah, have to that, that, get it done and get sad. them to allow them to say that you got it done before the election. Right, if you get it, cut it too close, then they can take away
1: the crucial raha. Right, yeah, that is that is quite atrocious. So, like, what is your was your theory on on why that happened? Like, back to the global mob, I guess. You know, no I mean, country. The, I mean, I don't think
0: it's. I don't have any special insight, but the obvious thing seems to be that you know major bureaucrats at that federal agency were anti-Trump and uh, wanted the Democrat to win, and they had support. There was enough other people in those agencies and the agencies nearby that would support them in that move. They they were right. People didn't get fired. Nobody got fired for that.
1: Right. So isn't the solution just, you know, schedule F, make it so that more of these these, uh, bureaucrats are accountable?
0: Well, accountable to who, how?
1: (laughs) To to whichever, whoever is the president, right? To either Trump or Biden. Right.
0: Uh, That would have worked well in this case. I haven't thought through all the other cases, which might go badly. Uh, but certainly, in this case, that would have gone better.
1: Yeah, th- this is the reason why I say this, right? Is that it's circling back to that that original critique of like basically what to do, or I don't know if it's a critique or like you know root cause dispute, right? Of what to do about the global mob, right? It, it is is the point that like okay, there's this like mob behavior, there's this like forager, these forager values that we kind of need to stop, or or is it that like we should stop the enforcement mechanism? Right. And I still think that we should stop the enforcement mechanism that that's basically the kind of biggest cost benefit thing we could do right now.
0: I'm not opposed, but I'm just not so confident that will be a fix. Uh, The question is just how strong is the mob getting with what mechanisms? And, uh, you know, as you know, we're in this religious revival sort of era and people are accumulating a lot of mechanisms not even sort of extra legal mechanisms to uh, enforce conformity in many ways. I think we're seeing lately a a large increase in the levers of conformity enforcement.
1: And so- Man, I'm just, (laughs) part of this is that I'm just so optimistic. Like there are kind of two reactions to the like broken world or like inadequate equilibria understanding right where you can say like man all these people are just absolute uh, actors right they're they're um, motivated by status and they' they're not actually t- none of their incentives are tied to actually being uh, actually doing well and you know everything sucks. or say like okay, all these people are terrible. And simultaneously, right, like, I I kind of gave this sort of mini pitch. I I gave this, like, explanation of, like, my kind of, like, speed run of the broken world hypothesis to a lot of people at both EADC and uh, NatCon. And their reaction was, I think, the normal one, which is to be like, oh, oh, no, this is very bad. And to be sad about it. But no, my reaction is to do the opposite right? Because, you know, my life, I always say to them afterwards, what has changed about your life from, you know, from like 30 minutes ago before I gave you this pitch? Literally nothing. So so we're living in a world where I can get, like, I can get delivery of basically anything, where we can develop vaccines, all things considered reasonably fast and reasonably well, where, you know, it's, it's quite a convenient life, despite all these things being true, right? Okay, so that, that doesn't really tell us anything about uh, about whether things are going to get worse or better, but it does tell us like, it, I'm just saying that to like point out my my like possible biases here, right? Like my, my just disposition. But But to me, I look at this and it's like, oh, there's actually like all of these institutions that are not just like, it's not like the problems are like super hard. Well, some of the problems are super hard, like maybe string theory or something like that. But there are other cases where it's like, just please like don't ban vaccines or don't ban COVID tests or like just... Or, or, I'm not sure if you follow any of, like, the Jones Act memes, like, you know, like, Shavim Alex Stopp, those people. Um, Just all of these, like, just obviously stupid laws that are passed. And it's like, just get rid of these. No one really wants to protect these aside from special interests. Like this is this should just be obvious and there's just so much low-hanging fruit left and it just makes me very optimistic about these things and and similar things uh i think are are there for reforming academia for um certainly repealing a lot of the kind of disparate impact bureaucracies there's just so much that can be done and i'm just so optimistic about this
0: so i am wary of trend tracking um my, my colleague Tyler Cowan talks about mood affiliation, and I do think there's a large element of mood affiliation in these topics where people just want to feel the same mood and want to agree on what the right mood is. Um, and that's related to trends in the sense that people want to identify the recent trends and have a mood regarding each trend. Um, but quite often, trend tracking isn't very actionable. <laughs> that is, if the trend were up versus down, you'd still want to do roughly the same things. Uh, and so trend tracking often like helps with mood coordination, but less with actually choosing policies. So most of the time when I'm trying to design better policies, I'm trying to make them robust. And I especially want them to be robust with respect to whether things are getting better or worse. That's a pretty small detail, and you don't want your system to depend on that. And so I'm mostly trying to go into each area, say academia or tax career agents, whatever it is, and say, what's the fundamental problem here? What are the key solutions and what would they look like and how could we make them robust? And once I have a solution I think is promising and robust, well, I don't care much about trends because my solution doesn't depend on the trends. It depends on convincing people that this is just a better way to do things regardless of the trends. And um, you want robust solutions that don't depend on details. You want to know that regardless of details, they would still be the better thing to do. And so this puts me at odds with a lot of public conversation, which is about trend tracking and coordination on moods about trends. Um, I'm not sure why I need a mood about the trends. I want to figure out what's better and let's do it.
1: Wait, I don't understand why any of this is a critique of my arguments at all. Like, what What changes with regards to trends about, like, repealing disparate impact laws,
0: or, like... I mean, I'm happy to sort of look at those laws and say, yeah, let's repeal them. I don't need to know whether that's the cause of recent trends or whether the trend is going forward or against it, or whether the overall trends are good or bad, to say, sure, I'm happy to support that.
1: Wait, but those trends are evidence of, like, the empirical impact of those laws right if you impa- if you if you put a law in place and then it causes and then bad things happen afterwards in, in the area which that law governs then y- that's some kind of signal right Right, and that's the game maybe, i don't... like it, it's impuri- maybe like it doesn't matter like the recentness of that trend right maybe if you collected that data like 50 years ago then that that's still or like 200 years ago that still retains some kind of truth there Right, but when I talk about like when I talk about okay, here's this longitudinal pattern, and here is like this this negative effect that's happening. Right, it's it's basically as evidence for like the optimum. Right, it's a, a, as evidence that repealing these laws is a good and significant thing to do. It, it's but, not like you know. But it's weak evidence. Going bad. We are feeling bad, so we need to reverse them.
0: I feel much more comfortable with just much stronger evidence I have by just analyzing these things on first principles. If I have to go with these trends, I have to admit that if these trends are the thing that's gonna decide me one way or the other, I have to admit either way, I can't be that sure. Because it's usually pretty hard to disentangle cause and effect with these long-term trends anyway. So I'm happy to find it plausible, but still, if that was my main evidence, I just couldn't be very sure. But if I just look at these laws and just say, look, on the face of it, using basic theory, what would I think of these things? And if I come with a relatively robust conclusion there, then I'm happy to just go with that.
1: Wait, but to me, right, there's not that much stronger of a kind of first principles case for, like, I don't know, associating status with doing, uh, with, like, doing these, like, new things, right? Or, like, versus being more selective in terms of ability, right? Like, what has happened in the past that has worked, right? I would say that the evidence is more on just selecting based on ability and, like, maybe those people decide, like, okay, we're going to do sets as well, right? But in terms of, like, actionable things that we can do and implement as a policy, it, it's, it's not clear to me that, like, you know, the like the time-neutral case is is very clearly favored towards... Your solution.
0: The world is just a big complicated place and there's just a lot of variables changing all the time. So if you're going to try to judge policy based on, you know, event studies of when a policy appeared and what sort of trends changed before versus after, you're just in a regime where it's just hard to tell a lot of things. And there's this whole other place you can go, which is just basic, say, economic theory about these policies, which gives more consistent and robust explanations for which things are good or bad. And that's where I'd rather go.
1: Wait, what is the, like, to me there, there has not been a lot of evidence for the significance of like, okay, like you can say like, okay, this is a problem and that it exists from like basic uh, economic theory right and i agree with you on that right i agree with you that it's a problem but that doesn't actually tell us the significance of that versus like versus like being insufficiently g-loaded right those like basically sensitivity tests are like pretty hard to determine theoretically and like pretty noisy as well right and and so you do have to to me at least you do have to do your best with like empirical data as like imperfect as that is
0: So for most of these things, what I want to do is design better institutions, better mechanisms that will produce better outcomes robustly. So I'd like to design a mechanism for academia that works okay when people are smart or not so smart. And that doesn't depend on assumptions about how smart they are. Um, I'd feel more comfortable with that sort of robustness. But it may not be possible. it may be that think something like it, academia only really works when you have people who are both smart and sort of fundamentally interested in the topic, not just interested because they get status and money out of it. If that's true, then, you know, we have some serious problems, you know, making academia work because we're just trying to make it work on far too large a scale than it can work on. But, I've tried to make some proposals for how we could fund that, how we could reform academia that I seem relatively robust, uh, but maybe what they'd find out is that it can only work at a much smaller scale than we have it. As you say, you know, in order to be very, have academics be very smart, we can't have as many of them. And it's also true that if we want academics to be just fundamentally motivated by their topics not just by the money or status we also probably can't have as many of them
1: yeah so I just think the marginal academic is negative uh, so not not to themselves but to the to the right um, yeah I, I'm not sure I'm not sure how to go further with this because you kind of You know, basically, he basically dismissed my case out of hand.
0: Well, I I would just, I mean, obviously lots of people do trend tracking. There's lots of papers. There's some stuff to do there, but I just tend to think it's overdone. (laughs) So when I, I tend to think sort of the more robust fundamental principles-based
1: analysis is underdone, and that's where I find it interesting to look. I should say there's a fundamental principles case for this as well, right? I don't know, like... The, just like, you know, human variation is different, or human variation exists, and, you know, the best people will do better than not the best people, like, that, that should be a pretty strong theoretical case as well,
0: right? Sure, but the best people have to go somewhere. Why here as opposed to somewhere else? You need the argument why that here they're just much more effective, because there's something you can only do here if you have especially smart people that you can't do if you don't have them. Whereas in other places you can, if you don't have the especially smart people, you can have the less smart people and it still works. Not as well, but it still works. So the question is, why is it here that it really only works at all if you have the especially smart people? And then if you add the requirement and they are especially motivated by wanting wanting to do the subject itself as opposed to these indirect incentives.
1: Right. I mean, I don't think it's just here, right? Like you get a pretty large correlation in, in many areas in many industries uh, with with intelligence and say uh, I don't know, not I don't know, like there's the kind of like technical critiques of this, there's like the Telebian critique of this of okay, like this the you in in real in like kind of business you get diminishing returns after like two standard deviations, like okay. Right. But in general in general. There are positive returns to this, and, and like in academia, there are like more positive returns to this uh, in terms of uh, in terms of more uh, or higher quality research. Uh, and, and that might just be because there's harder problems, right? Uh, right, but
0: we have these smart people. Where should they go? It's
1: isolated, right? It's right. quite far from like an isolated factor. Like academia might be like more intense in the disparity, but it's not unique in the disparity at all.
0: No, but... I mean, the question is, should we be pushing the smartest people into academia or should they go somewhere else? Maybe there's another place where their values are even more, you know, valuably used.
1: I mean, I'm looking at it from a different level of analysis which is just like, okay, there are a set of people in academia or like there's like an upper bound or sorry, there's like a lower bound we can set for the people in academia, right? And the question is where to set that lower bound. Like the people, like the smart people in academia, they're already in academia, right? I mean, like we can we can probably go at the margins and like convince them not to be in academia. But another thing that we could do is just to optimize uh, the system for the people who are already in it. And, and, and my assertion is that you can do that by just like raising the standards and taking like the bottom
0: 50%. So for an awful lot of social science, a key question comes down to what are the actual levers of change? And a lot of disagreements come because people pick a lever and they assume they can move that lever and then other people make different assumptions about what the levers are. What can be changed? So you might be thinking of a lever, well, let's pick the lever of the minimum IQ for academics. And I might go, I don't see that lever. (laughs) I don't see where you would set that line. I don't see anybody willing to let you set the line or open to letting you set that line. I just, that doesn't look like a lever to me.
1: Wait, What? Explicit government policy. This is like this is literally like. I mean, maybe you're just not familiar with this, but this is like a regime that was directly enforced through disparate impact laws that basically stripped the ability of universities to to discriminate effectively based on intelligence.
0: I'm happy to support reversing a law that prevents such discrimination. I'm just not so sure how big an effect that will have, but I'm happy to support that. I'm happy to let people yeah, discriminate okay. on the basis of intelligence. Yes. And I th- and my colleague Brian Kaplan has argued that, in fact, most companies are allowed to discriminate that way. Somehow they've told themselves they're not, but in fact, they are.
1: Um, right. There, uh, in companies, it's a little bit uh, different. I-, I would once again defer to Hanania on this. I should have him on again. Uh, but yes, uh, the standards for companies are a bit different. And you can see, I mean, you can see tech doing it quite effectively as well, right? And, and not, to, not to know returns.
0: But I can certainly say that within most academic departments when they're hiring people, often just saying someone sure seems smart counts in that hiring decision. And then cultures just vary in how much weight they put on that. So I would say, in fact, they do look at how smart people are and it does get some weight and they aren't prevented from weighing it. The
1: question is how effective is that, right? This is kind of like the, the tech off point of like how effective is that versus just doing a test. And I think I actually saw a paper very recently uh, where um statistical aggregators are much more effective at predicting various metrics of uh of sure academics. I mean, but they
0: are usually allowed to post their SAT scores and the SAT score is an actual substantial substitute for an IQ test. so
1: yes, I agree. Uh, we should have more SAT we should have more SAT tests
0: uh, I mean, but and like people who've taken the test once, it often appears on their later, Information about them.
1: Yeah, for sure. Like, I, I don't want to pretend this is like zero, zero or one, right? It's not right. like there's there's none of this being done. It's just, it's just too. Right. A so I think my
0: time is about up here. Is there like a last thing you'd like to discuss before we end?
1: Oh, yes, absolutely. So, the last question of the show for everyone who comes on the show What is something that has too much chaos and needs more order, and something that is too much order and needs more chaos? Uh, preferably, things we haven't talked about yet.
0: Um, That's a good question. I don't usually think in terms of what areas have chaos versus order. So I, well, I would think, say, maybe like if you think of effective altruism as a way where people are trying to bring order to what was chaos, some people would say they've gone too far and they're trying to plan too much. I might think there's too much order in say AI risk analysis or something. More, um,
1: more chaos than AI AI safety. Let's
0: go. I mean, so chaos could just more be think in terms of like an adaptation process. Instead of trying to plan it all out, plan to adapt. Set yourself up just to, to see what happens and respond. So that's a world where you're just expecting more chaos in a sense. And I would think maybe from my tax career agent point of view that people, there's just too much chaos and people choosing careers. They should have an agent who they trust, who advises them or they make Sort of better long-term
1: choices. Indeed. Well, thanks for coming on the show. We did get Thank to you. mention EA very briefly, which is like a third of my prep
0: <laughs> I'm happy to come on again and talk some more.
1: Yeah, we can save that for round three. That will that that would be great. Thanks for having me. That was my podcast with Robin Hansen. As you can tell, there was a lot more focus in what I wanted to talk about this time compared to last time, if you've even listened to the last episode. And we still didn't manage to get through even more than, say, around a third of my prep. And, well, all that means is that we can have a great occasion for another podcast episode. As I said at the beginning, you can help us out by letting a friend know, by giving us a review, or by subscribing, which you'll have to do if you want to get the next episode. We may also be doing something interesting Uh, This Friday as well. Remember last Friday, we had an episode out with John Ascanis. But this will be something a little bit different. And as always, we'll get another Normal from the New World episode next Monday as well. And you'll have to be subscribed to catch both of those. See you then!